This past week, a flight, Ukrainian flight, PS752 left Tehran on its way to Kiev. Two minutes after taking off, it crashed. We now know it crashed because of an errant missile. 176 people died. Among them were this bride and groom who live in Canada that came to see their extended family in Tehran, were married there, and two days later they got on the flight. There were 163 people going to Canada, 60 plus were Canadian nationals. This family were Canadian citizens, a man and his wife were professors at the University of Alberta, and their two young daughters both all perished. You read that and you read some of the statements. I read the BBC. They gave very good coverage. And one person said of a young woman who died, she was full of dreams and now they are gone. It is too late. Another commented on a young woman who's a medical student in Canada who'd gone to Iran to visit. She was studying all the time to be a doctor, but she wanted to live. She wanted to have fun and to fall in love, and now she doesn't have time for that anymore. And I, thinking about that, I thought about the psalm that's attributed to Moses in Psalm 90, where Moses says, we may live 70 years, and maybe 80, but it said it's brief. It's here, and it's gone. And so the psalmist cries out, so teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And as I thought about this tragedy, words that came to mind were words like brevity or should be focused, I should be intentional. And so that's why I'm going through this section now, the next few weeks on the springs out of Isaiah chapter 40, where Isaiah is writing prophetically to a group of people who would be involved in the Babylonian captivity. And after he goes through chapter 40, he talks about the sweeping grandeur of God and God's mercy and goodness and the fact that he is eternal and he weighs the nations in a, in a, in a bucket and he pulls a curtain across the heavens, the vast expanse. He says this, he says, have you not heard and have you not known that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. And after talking about the grandeur and the glory and the eternal nature of God, he makes this statement, and it's really mind-boggling. He says this, he says, he gives power to the faint. That'd be us. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. So, so this great, grand, glorious, eternal God with no beginning, no, who, no end, who has inexhaustible knowledge and wisdom, empowers his people. And he says, uh, young people will stumble and fall, and, and young men will fall exhausted. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount them with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and they shall not faint. It's an amazing statement. So I'm talking about waiting upon the Lord, looking to the Lord expectantly. And I've done the framework the last couple of weeks, so I'm talking about four 
disciplines over the next five weeks that causes us to wait upon the Lord. And the disciplines are the, the Scripture, relationship, living as called out people, and understanding the rhythms of the Holy Spirit for our lives. <clears throat> and all of that must be undergirded and built upon the beauty of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 24, that says this, By wisdom a house is built, through understanding it is established, and by knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures, or ESV says precious and pleasant riches. But, but I'm talking about the rooms in this house that we build in such a fashion that they're filled with rare and beautiful treasures. The Word, relationship, our calling, and the rhythm of the Holy Spirit, undergirded by prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. So these two comments, then we're going to go to Psalm 1 briefly today. So these waiting upon the Lord, which means to look to God with expectancy and hope, puts us in the path of blessing where Jesus is walking. Please hear me. Some people approach study, prayer, fellowship, like it's, it's four quarters in a soda machine outside of a store. And you put in four quarters, you hit your button, and you get a soda. That's not the way it works, the way I understand the Bible. What, what, what we do is we, we run to Christ as needy, broken people, and we get in the path where Jesus is walking, and we say, Jesus, Son of God, Almighty Savior, have mercy upon me. It's not automatic. He has to touch us by His Spirit to enlighten and build and strengthen and renew and, and, and get us out. And so in, in Matthew chapter 8, I was reading this week, right after the Sermon on the Mount, it says this, when Jesus came down from the mountain, after this incredible sermon, <clears throat> great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So what I'm saying is, we're the leper. Well, we're like blind Bartimaeus, another gospel account. And, and we're, we're saying, Almighty Lord, by the power of Jesus, have mercy on me. Have, have, I'm a leper. I'm, I'm blind. I need your grace. So it's not that we just do this. We do behavior modification and we rearrange our schedule to be more disciplined. That, that's part of it. But it's got to be, Lord, have mercy on me. In, in, empower me, show me your goodness and, and your glory. Martin Luther, the guy that started the Reformation, who died at age 62, 1546, February. The last thing Luther said was this, we are beggars, this is true. He died. We're beggars. We're beggars, this is true. There's a book on marriage that I like. I think it's the best book I've ever read on marriage by a guy named Tim Keller and his wife Kathy. And this is what Keller writes in his book. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed 
in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. And I just say amen to that. Amen. Number two is if you want to find purpose and meaning and hope and joy, joy, happiness, we are people who understand that we need to wait upon the Lord and look to Him in expectancy and hope because He is the source of all joy and hope and purpose and dignity. So, so we want to stay in Christ. We want to stay in the Scripture. We want to be people who, 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 who stay, stay here. Something called the Vine Project has this definition of what discipleship involves. I think it's a wonderful definition. Disciples are made by the persevering proclamation of the Word of God by the people of God in prayerful dependence upon the Spirit of God. So, so it's, it's the proclamation of the Word, perseveringly done, week by week by week, passage by passage. You think through it by people of God in small groups and marriage enrichment groups and worship and Sunday morning Bible study and man-to-man tables, whatever, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a wonderful definition. So we, we, we stay here. And uh, There's a book by a guy named Ed Welch on addictions. It's a wonderful book, Addictions of Banquet, Banquet from the Grave. And he talks about a man he'd met. His name is Jim, and Jim had kind of walked away from being vitally involved in the church and says that the Bible doesn't seem to be relevant to him. His theology tells him that there is a heaven, and he is hoping to get there, but it doesn't tell him how to live, so he thinks. He sees no present benefits to the cross of Christ. Without Scripture to guide him in the details of his life, other beliefs will rush in, and they will. And then Welch says this, We tend to look to Scripture for the life to come, but since the psychotherapeutic revolution of the 1960s, the Christian community has tended to look to secular psychotherapies for guidelines on how to live successfully in the now. He goes on, he says, for example, biblically unsupervised principles about self-esteem and individual rights and the alleged centrality of personal success and significance quietly exert their influence on our thinking, casting shadows on the truth and the sufficiency of Scripture. So, so, so what he's saying is that, is that a lot of people come to the Scripture and say, this tells me how to get my sins forgiven and how to get to heaven, but between sins forgiven and going to heaven, there's this void. And I'm saying that's not true. We believe in the sufficiency of the Bible. If we want to have hope and joy and peace, we wait upon God and repeat the book. We, 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 we are here. See, see, if you want to know who made you, God is done. What's my purpose in living? To glorify Him and to honor Him. Done. If you want to know where to go with your sin and your failures and your brokenness that we all have, it's here. At the cross of Christ, His blood covers us. Done. What happens when you die? You go to heaven. Done. How do you walk in, 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 a, in a marriage at times? It just is a struggle. Well, you do it in a covenant relationship as you walk with God. It's done. Outside of that, where do you go? 
give an example. So you talked about self-esteem. So I ran home to the library yesterday. I just went, I said, where's the self-esteem section? I said, here it is. And so I, I went there. I just grabbed these books, just all books together. Um, all have the same column number except for one that was over here. But so self-esteem, happiness, stay here. Here's a book. I just, this is a book called uh, Happy as a Dame, as in Denmark, Dame. Ten Secrets to the Happiest People in the World. I mean, they, they do surveys and survey after survey the last few years has said that the happiest people in the world are either from Sweden or Denmark. I don't know how they do that. I mean, no one's ever called me and said, are you happy? That's never happened. I, I just, so I just, you just see these things. But anyway, she wrote this book. It's, it's an interesting little book. It's, it talks about how Danes have time off and how uh, they, 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 they don't give themselves too, too much materialism and they ride bikes more than drive cars because, you know, Denmark's only about as big as Walterboro, so you can do that. And uh, I mean, it's not a bad book. So I'd say as far as it's, it's not bad. It's just, so, so I, I put it here. You know? and the next book is, um, I want to mention is this, The Care of the Soul, the 20, new 25th edition by a guy named Thomas More. I read it 25 years ago. And I, I read a blurb that said he was a uh, uh, one-time Catholic monk, and now he's written a book on the care of the soul. I said, it's pretty good. I, so I, the, I care of the soul. I want to know about that. So I read it. And, and I kept reading it and reading it and reading it. I said, where's Jesus? And he's not. He's not. There's no Jesus in here. He's a kind of combination of Buddhist... Hindu, kind of sort of Christian, and California New Age thinking. And, and it's, 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 it's a dangerous book. It's a dangerous book. So the, the, the Dane book is just kind of silly. This is dangerous. So, so when you, lie, you read it in the light of Scripture, you go, well, put this over here, way over there. And then th this book, um, The Moral Landscape by Sam Harris. Sam Harris is one of the militant, angry atheists. I didn't really read this, but I just picked it up and thought, I don't know what a militant, angry atheist who curses the name of God can say to me about morality. So I may read through it, but I think that's dangerous. This was interesting. Peter Singer, I'm, I'll mention him next week, kind of, sort of. Peter Singer is the uh, professor of ethics at Princeton University. He said, he said in the book that it? This right. Princeton's endowment now is $23 billion. I think he said that. Anyway. Less than Yale. They're really struggling. This less than Yale. So uh, anyway, so, so Peter Singer is also an advocate that if a child is born, uh, the parents have three months to let the child die if they don't want to mess with, with having a child. He's avidly that way. He's, so it's interesting. But, but in this book, he talks about, about we should be altruistic or selfless. And he talks about how he and his wife, and I really admired this, work hard to give 15% of their income to charitable things, to good causes. And he challenges his students to do that. He talks about certain students that have done that, and they, 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 they give, and, and, and they, they try to, to live in such a way that frees them up to give. He says we should live out altruistically. And I, I would really love to have a dialogue with him and say, on the basis of what? If there's no God... With no standards, how can you ask people to be selfless? Very interesting. Now think about this compared to, to this, where Jesus says he loves a cheerful giver. Jesus says if a kernel of wheat falls in the ground, it dies and it brings forth much fruit. He says if a man finds his life, he will lose it. But if he loses his life for his sake, he'll find it. He, he says, you know, 
Given it shall be given to you. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. I mean, so we have a reason, brothers and sisters, to be givers. They don't. I mean, it's just interesting to me. So I was expecting a bad book. It's not a bad book. But there's no God here. Then this book. I picked it up. Again, this book's about 30 years old by a guy named Scott Peck called The Road Less Traveled. They come out with a new edition. Whenever they come out with a new edition, somebody writes a, a two-page preface that they didn't write in the first book, and you buy it again and spend 20 bucks on that book, and this, that's what they do. But Scott Peck wrote this book, Psychiatrist. It's a, it's a very good book. It's very close to truth. In fact, after he wrote this book, between this book and his next book, which is People of the Lie, he came to Jesus. In fact, he starts the second book by saying, in my first book, I talked about some of these truths, but now I know deeper truth because I've come to know Jesus as my Savior and I've been baptized as a believer in Him. And so he wrote some other books. And they were okay, not great at times, but, but, but this is it says good. So I, I put it close to this. But what I'm saying is, whatever we do, this, this is the touchstone. This, this is who we are. And so if we're going to have this house, this Full, full, full of rare and beautiful treasures. We're people of, of, of the book. So I'm going to give you two principles out of Psalm 1 this week and two more next week as we talk about the Bible. So Psalm 1 says this, verses 1 and 2. And Psalm 1 is the gateway to all 150 Psalms. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he will meditate day and night. First of all, the word blessed can be translated happy. Don't be scared off of that. If you're going to read a book this year, just one book, read Happiness by Randy Alcorn. It is a great book. There's a statement here by Alcorn from that book in the worship guide. He says, he says, suppose churches thought that God is happy and he is the source of all happiness. Suppose Christians believe that God calls them to view work and play and music and food and drink as gracious gifts from God's hand to be responsibly enjoyed within the parameters of his commands. Close quote. He says, because that's true. Happy. Blessed. Fulfilled, purposeful is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. See, God has called us to joy and purpose and fulfillment. I, I, I get excited. There are people here today who are making life-changing decisions, life-altering decisions. And I want us to be people who live in the context of God's revelation because therein is purpose and hope. Happy, blessed. I think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, blessed, happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn over their sin and the sin around them, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are the merciful. Happy are the pure in heart. Now, the world looks at that and goes, people who are poor in spirit and who mourn 
and who intentionally walk in humility are losers. You got you to pump yourself up and, and you got to disdain people who are struggling. You got to just turn away from them. Said, no, no, Jesus says, happy. I vote for Jesus. So I, I look at this and I go, God, teach us. Teach us that the blessed, happy life flow from understanding the revealed will of God. So just two principles. Number one, happiness, blessedness. If we want it, we have to determine to earnestly seek it and approach living with a mean streak regarding being people of the truth. We can't just float. We've got to say, you know. So to me, this passage, there, there are three types of people. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. The word wicked means impious. It means that they, they, they just have no place in their worldview, and we're all developing a view of life. There's no place in their worldview for the reality of God. I mean, they may be noble pagans, good neighbors, elected officials who are okay people, but they're, they're just the, 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 the wicked, they're impious. They, they just, there's no, there are people here who just have no place in their worldview for God. And your view is skewed. Good people, I mean, you can enjoy them. The second group are sinners. Sinner is, is someone who's, who, who bears blame. And the, the third word is what really arrests my attention or, or doesn't sit in the seat of mockers. So first of all, you, you walk, you kind of you see it, but then you stop. They've stopped you. And then finally, you, you sit, which means you just you sit in their company. Your, your defense system is down. He says, uh, he doesn't sit. In the seat of the mockers, a mocker is someone who, who disdains the reality and the character of God. The, the word for mock is used a few times in the book of Proverbs. Listen, I'll read three of them. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7, whoever, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Verse 8, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Correct a wise man and he'll love you. See, a, a scoffer gets corrected and he says, who are you to tell me? I call my own shots. I, I do what I want to do. Uh, you, you say to him, you know, as I've been your friend, I've noticed that you have this really hard attitude toward this guy. And that's just not good. Have you forgiven him? He goes, who are you to tell me to forgive? Well, I don't, Jesus does. Matthew 6, 14, it's very clear. We stand under this authority. See, our mocker is going to say, get out of my face. I call the shots. It says, correct a wise man, he'll love you. Now, I look at this and I say, am I, am I correctable? after the first defense system goes up. Proverbs 13, verse 1 says, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Doesn't hear you. Chapter 14, verse 6, A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. You know, have you ever been around people that they just kind of get it? They just get it? They just get it? It's because they walk in humility. 
Other people just don't get it. They don't get it because they call the shots. So, so, so this, this, this uh, scoffing, see, the, the issue is if we don't attune our hearts to understand these things, we're going to float, float, float into a worldview where the character and the reality and the standards of God are just void. Let me give you an example. I was reading the Wall Street Journal this week, and this was on page A11. It's a picture of a man and a woman, uh, and it's a, it's a big article. And the article goes like this. It says, uh, apps help strangers have a baby together. And the Wall Street Journal is a, it's, it's a right of, right of uh, center. It's a conservative newspaper. I mean, I, I enjoy the Wall Street Journal. And I, I picked this up and I started reading. I'm going, wow, wow. Let me just read a few things to you. So this is an app. They give two apps. Uh, they're called pollentree.com and Modomaly. It says... Uh, that match would-be parents who want to share custody of a child without any romantic expectations. It's a lot like a divorce without the wedding or the arguments. And 500 babies have been birthed from these people getting together. It says when you, one person says, when you meet someone on Match.com or Tinder, you can date someone for six months before you know whether the relationship is going anywhere. That's fine when you're younger, but when you're in your mid-30s or later, you can't wait for several months to find out if that person is ready to have kids. So this speeds up the process. Another says this, the creator of these internet sites says 60% of the co-parenting seekers are women. The male clientele is evenly split between single gay men and heterosexual men, both seeking to be co-parents with women. There are also same-sex couples looking to have a mother or father figure in their child's life. Goes on says, one woman considered men she knew personally, but none of them panned out. She eventually spoke to 10 men in Montana where she lived through modality and pollen tree, but because she couldn't leave Montana because her first child was there. She's a geologist, geologist, so her options were limited. None of them wanted to be parents, and so she found this guy in British Columbia. They started emailing, texting. They met together once a month for several months, and now she's pregnant, and she's going to have a baby in June. And I read this, and this is just a lightly reported article, and I'm going, nobody says here, this is weird. Flag, flag, this is just strange. It's just kind of a breezy thing. And I think it's wonderful for people who want to have babies. Don't misunderstand me. But marriage isn't mentioned. You know, marriage, the reason for getting married. Listen, if you're married, one reason for getting married is to have children. Another reason for getting married is companionship. And the third reason, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, sexual fulfillment. Yes, the Westminster Divines said that. Okay, so anyway, so, so that, 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 that's it. So listen, if, if you are married and you're of childbearing years and you have said out loud, I'm, I'm not fussing at you, but you said, we don't want to have kids. I think that's being disobedient to Scripture. So go home today and get busy. You know, let's, let's have babies. Let's have some babies dedicated about nine or ten months and we'll rejoice with you. Anyway, but this passage, this, this article mentions, doesn't mention marriage. In fact, it says you can have a child without going through the heartache of romance. You know, romance is so sticky. Isn't it sticky? 
It's just sticky. Being with someone and trying to be kind to them, we don't want to be kind to them at times, can be sticky. You know what I mean? Amen? Thank you. Seriously. I mean, it's just hard. And you can have this baby and you don't have to go through the arguments and the, the, the attorneys when you have a divorce. And I'm going, this is, just, see, you, this is bip, 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 bip. And this is a pretty tame example. We have to be aware. There has to be a streak where you say, does this square with Scripture? I read a book this week. And part of the book was about a guy named Horatio Nelson, one of the heroes of Great Britain. Horatio Nelson died at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. He was the leader of the, uh, an incredible victory for the British naval forces. And he, he sent out a message to all the ships that said this, Britain expects for all of her sons to do their duty today. And, and it's really one of the themes of the British Empire. So he was 5'5". Five five. He was a man of incredible courage. His dad was a pastor. He was um, just won victory after victory. In fact, the reason Napoleon could never think about invading England is because Horatio Nelson defeated the French time after time, and they just couldn't get to England on ships. And so in, in 1801, four years before his death, he's already lost an eye in battle and an arm. One arm, one eye. And so he's going into battle. He's the number two admiral. They're going into Denmark. The French have conquered Denmark, and they're about to seize the Danish Navy. And if they do that, they can do warfare against the Brits and, and the British, the, the English Channel. And so they're going there to, to scuttle or destroy the Danish Navy. And they get there, and there's fire pouring out of the forts. The French have manned the forts. They're just pouring fire on them, and, and it's hard. And the, the ships are being hit, and people are dying. And they would, this is amazing, they, they would, they would, they would uh, before they went to battle, they would get out, and they would, they would take sandpaper and sand the decks of these ships so that when the blood flowed freely, they wouldn't fall. So they, they knew death was coming. And so the fire is coming, and the lead admiral says, this fire is too hot. We're going to retreat back into the ocean and not fight and scuttle the Danish Navy. And they told Horatio Nelson that they received that message. And he says, give me the spy glass or the glass. And he takes the glass and he puts it to his blind eye. And he says, I don't see that. Full speed ahead. And they won a great victory. Destroyed the Danish Navy. And I read that and I thought, that's what we need to do. We get the metaphor, turn a blind eye from that story that probably isn't true, but it's a great story. We need to turn a blind eye. We do, we're able to turn a blind eye as we walk in Scripture with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if we're to build a house with rare and beautiful treasures, that's what we've got to do. I quote frequently Alexander Pope who said, Vice is a monster of such frightful mean as to be hated means but to be seen, yet seen too often. We grow accustomed to her face. First we endure, then we pity, then we embrace. And I say, dear brothers and sisters, be careful. Love broken people just like us. Love them. But understand God has his standards. You can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it answers the big questions. It answers the, you know, your purpose in life. I was reading about Augustine this week. Augustine's Confessions, chapter, or book six. He talks about, he's, before he's a believer, and he says that he's out, and he's, 
He's, he's raised this little village, no-nothing village in Algeria. He moves to Carthage, and he's educated. He's a shining star at Carthage. He goes to Rome, where he's another shining star. And then he makes his way all the way to Milan, which was the center of the empire at that time, where everybody lived. And it's still kind of the fashion center of Italy. But he's there, and he's getting ready to speak to the emperor. He's made it. He's a Ph.D. in rhetoric, and he's getting ready to speak to the emperor. I mean, it's, it's game day times ten. And he said he's walking outside, waiting to go in and speak to the emperor, give a speech to the emperor. And he looks, and in the corner, there's a drunk who's laughing with another guy. And it's in the morning. They've already, they're already drunk. And, and Augustine says, he, he, says um, he says this. I thought it was very interesting. He said, says that they have no goal other than to reach carefree cheerfulness. And he said I had to stop and say, that was my only goal. Why was I driven by goads of ambition? That was my only goal. The only goal in life was to be known and have carefree cheerfulness. And I thought to myself, why am I having an ulcer going back and forth, writing this incredible speech, I hope, and over here's a guy who has, he's already achieved what I, the highest goal I have is carefree cheerfulness. See, if your goal in life is carefree cheerfulness, but if your goal in life is to honor God and to extend the kingdom and to, and, and, and to really enjoy the blessed state of saying Jesus is Lord, Stay in the book. Stay in the book. Point two, very quickly. He says, but, he doesn't do this, but his delight is in the law of his God. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now I want you to hear me. This. He treasures the scripture. I've talked to some people. We had a community group this week, and a couple people said, well, one of my goals this year is to read through the Bible. It's a great goal. One of my goals, too. I'm, I do the ESV Bible reading plan. So it's a worthy goal. But if, if there was one discipline for taking in Scripture, I would vote 100 times 100 for biblical meditation or Memorization, but really meditation. It gets the word in your life. A lot of times I will read the Bible at early in the morning, and by lunch somebody says, what did you read today? I said, well, I read Matthew and Genesis, because that's what I'm reading through now. But the particulars kind of skip me. I've got to go back to my journal and say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Biblical meditation means, meditate means to, to, uh, to mutter, to chew, to murmur, to sing. It's the difference between taking food in your mouth and letting the food go into your system. That's what I believe. David says in Psalm 119, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I won't sin against God. Now, so let me, let me tell you how it works. Example. I've been trying to meditate on Proverbs 8, 34, and 35. It goes like this. It's in your, the worship guide. Blessed, happy. Blessed or happy is the man who listens to me. Watching at my gates. Waiting at my door. 
For he who finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. I'm going, wow. So, so the, 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 the gate in, in, in the Old Testament, the gate was like the place of decision-making where the, the leaders sat and made key decisions. So it's like that, that's the municipal court, that's the gathering place. So blessed is the man who listens to me watching daily at my gates, which is a place of seriousness, waiting at my doors, which leads into the gate. For he who finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. I want, I am hungry for God's favor. I, I want to know the favor of God. And if, in fact, if there's somebody here who, who claims the name of Jesus and you say, I don't want to know the favor of God, please see me afterwards. I want to pick your brain on that. Everybody here wants the favor of God. And the Bible says here that, that as, as we look to the Lord, as we look in His Word, as we wait for Him, as we listen, as we watch, favor. Favor. So you go through the day and so say, well, so Lord, Lord how, can, how can I listen more to you? Lord, give me a listening ear. Lord, how can I, how can I watch daily? I need to watch. I need to, I'm really taking, I need to take in, I need to watch daily. You just think about it and you pray it and, and you ponder it. That, that's what I'm talking. That's what the Bible says. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And what's humbling beyond words to me is when David writes this, he's talking about the law of the Lord is the first five books of the Old Testament. That's it. We have the complete canon. We've got everything. How much more should we say? We want to meditate on the great themes of the Bible. We want to meditate on the great news of Jesus. So let me just say this. This building has to be undergirded by prayer and the Holy Spirit. So as this year is upon us, I really want us to be a praying church. I want to be more of a man of prayer. I want to have a prayer culture. And to me, prayer is based upon at least two things. Let me mention them. The first is that we realize a great and glorious Abba Father loving Savior and comforting Holy Spirit want to be the object of our pursuit. It's amazing. God wants us to have fellowship with Him. I was reading Isaiah 30 this week and just went, you've got to be kidding me. This is what Isaiah 30 says. It's talk, it talks about the Lord. This just Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. The Lord waits to be gracious. God wants to be gracious to people who seek him. I'm going, wow. Behold our God. The second thing about prayer is this pursuit is birthed in two things. First of all, my need. There's an old hymn that some of us heard years ago, I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee, oh bless me now my Savior, I come to thee. Man, no truer words have ever been spoken. I am undone without the reality of Jesus. 
I, I, I need you. Jesus, by the Spirit, I need you. And, it, and that, in conjunction with a desire to understand and see his beauty, his desirability, his, his wonder. I, Jonathan Edwards, died in 1758, said this in one of his miscellanies. God is glorified not only in his glories being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. God is more glorified when we rejoice in him than when we merely see his truth. Here's the difference. Edwards says you, you can see the truth, but does the truth grip you, make you rejoice? I'm a needy person. I want to see the beauty of Jesus. Pray. God delights to hear the prayers of his children. I mean, he delights that we come to him as a child. Messy, stuttering. We have some really, God's blessed us with grandchildren. And we have a friend whose daughter is just a few months older than my grandchildren. They're two and a half. And she knows all the Christmas carols. They played me a tape of her singing. I was going, good grief. I mean, all the Christmas carols. It helps in the regard that her parents are both incredibly bright. My two and a half year old grandchildren uh, one, her vocabulary is this, gaga and poo-poo. We flew on a plane, she stood in the middle of first class and screamed out poo-poo at the top of her voice. My grandson smiles and he'll say two or three words. But let me tell you, those words are more precious to me than any words I've ever heard. I delight to hear gaga. I delight to hear papa. Abba Father does the same. He loves for his children to say, here's my request again. He, he loves for us to ask. And then he says in Matthew 7, how much more, Jesus says, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? He just delights in it. He delights in us asking. So, pray. This is, this is one thing that we've tried to start doing as a staff. We've talked about it in You'll, you'll see people in church or even out as you walk. And, and they'll say, I'm, I'm going to talk to a dear person yesterday who was sharing some concerns, just a godly guy sharing some concerns. And they'll say, well, here's my concern. Here's what I'm going through. And, and it's, don't pat them on the back. I mean, my, my exhortation. Don't pat them on the back and say, I will pray for you. Say, hey, hey what, what, let's, let's ask the Father. In the name of Jesus, pray in the name of Jesus because he's the one mediator. Let's ask the Father in the name of Jesus to work this in your life. Let's just pray right here. And you, you pray. And you're, you're a, so that's part of a prayer culture. Well, let's just pray over this right now. And you, and you do it. But wisdom's house is built through knowledge. It is established through understanding. His rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures.
A beautiful treasure is the truth of God that grips our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for the, the, the mind-boggling thought that the God who has no beginning and who has no end, who's Trinitarian in his glory, who is inexhaustible in his wisdom, gives strength to those who have no might. And to those who are fainting, he gives power. That's us. And that blows our mind. So we, we like we rejoice in that. And because of that, we want to wait upon you. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And we're part of waiting is to be people who let the word of God define the contours of our existence. So help us have a, have a bold, laughing, happy, militant attitude towards we are people of truth. This is who we are because we're bought by the blood of Jesus. And we walk before him. Well, I, I pray that our delight would be in the word of God. And we would joyfully meditate. And as we meditate and chew it and think it and sing it and walk in it, you'd change us. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.